0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I join antiquarian dealer Jonathan Wattis, who shows me a rare hydrographic chart of Hong Kong harbour from 1946. But first, author Mark O'Neill tells me of the life of David Sassoon, who was born in 1792 in Baghdad. Like his father, he would become the treasurer of Baghdad before anti-Semitism drove him to then Bombay, where he headed the Jewish community and built a trading empire. He would branch out to Shanghai, where one of his descendants, Victor Sassoon, built the Peace Hotel. Another descendant is the First World War poet, Siegfried Sassoon. Mark O'Neill is the author of Israel in China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi.
1: Well, this is a very good photograph because you can see the very imposing figure of the father, David Sassoon, who founded this dynasty, which was later called the Rothschilds of the Orient. He's dressed in the Baghdadi traditional clothes, and he continued to wear these throughout his life, even though he moved to Bombay, which was part of British India. And as you also observe, the son on the right is dressed in the Western manner. So what happened was that the later generations of Sassoons assimilated into the British style because they're living in British India and also they lived in Britain so of course they have to assimilate into the British way of doing things they have to have a British education they have to dress in a, in a, in a, in a British way and this tells us one of the major elements of the Sassoon family and of many Jewish families which is that they have to change according to the way, where they're living now the Sassoons are Sephardic This means they were originally in Spain. And at the end of the 15th century, the king of Spain expelled the Jews from Spain and they moved to many different countries in North Africa and the Middle East. And this particular family was in Baghdad. So they lived in Baghdad for many years. And then there was an anti-Semitic ruler in Baghdad, so they decided to move. So they moved from Baghdad to Bombay. And they then take on another identity. And David Sassoon arrives in Bombay at the age of 40, 40 years old. At that age, he then sets up a completely new enterprise, trading enterprise, uh, banking enterprise. So what year? So he moves to Bombay in 1832. Now his father was the treasurer of Baghdad for many years.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well he was the head of finance for Baghdad and Baghdad was a province of the Ottoman Empire so he had an extremely high status in the um, Ottoman society
0: Because it's interesting here looking at David Sassoon, he, d- he does have a, a turban on
1: Yes, well he, he spoke Persian, he spoke Hindustani, he spoke Turkish, he spoke Hebrew, he didn't speak English So this was the world he was in and he grew up in and he was expecting to follow his father as the treasurer of Baghdad and he did hold this position for some time but then a new governor came in Baghdad and started to implement anti-Semitic policies. If you're a greedy ruler anti-Semitic policies are very lucrative because you can find some excuses to confiscate their properties or tax them. And so this decided, David Sassoon, to give up this very comfortable life that he had in Baghdad and move to a new place. And he moved to Bombay, which was the commercial capital of British India. And as I say, there he started a completely new life and he began a new dynasty. And his dynasty extended from India to China, to Hong Kong, to Japan. And his descendants continued this dynasty in India, in China, in Shanghai, and also in, in Britain. And as you know, Sieg, Siegfried Sassoon is one of his descendants, a famous World War I poet, and another descendant was one of the founders of the Royal Air Force. So it's an extremely remarkable family.
0: Interesting. And as you say, to leave Baghdad at the age of 40, I mean, that 40 in those days was much more senior than it is today.
1: Uh, Yeah, and he and his father had held this very high post in Iraq, so it's much more difficult to leave when you've got so much to leave behind. But I I think this is in the institutional memory of Jewish people. Persecution has happened before, expulsion has happened before, and therefore it may happen again. So I think they're always uh, psychologically prepared to move if necessary.
0: And what sort of kind of Jew was uh, David Sassoon? I mean, he was a uh, Sephardic Jew.
1: Yeah, he was orthodox and he was observant. And as you know, to be an orthodox, observant Jew is strict. There are many rules you have to follow. Of course, you cannot eat pork. You cannot eat anything which contains pork fats or anything related to pork. You cannot eat uh, shellfish. And you must observe the Sabbath on Saturday. And observing the Sabbath means you cannot travel. You cannot work. In the present day, you can't use a computer, you can't use a mobile telephone, you can't switch on a light. And despite his very busy schedule and running a global business empire, uh, David Sassoon continued to observe this rule throughout his life.
0: So when he arrives in Bombay in 1832, you say he also brought his community with him. It's not that he was just travelling
1: with his family. Well, he made the decision that... He, he couldn't go on living in Baghdad because of the persecution. So he brought his children and his wife with him. But, of course, the other Jewish people in Baghdad, five to 6,000, most of them were not wealthy. They were just common people. Of course, they were also the object of this persecution. So he was the leader of the community in Baghdad, so he moved to Bombay. So many of them also moved to Bombay with him. And he set up businesses and he gave employment to many of them. So he then became the leader of the Jewish community in Bombay. He built large and very imposing synagogues in Bombay and in Pune, which was his summer residence. You know, this was the place that the British went during the summertime. So he built uh, synagogues there. He also built a school for the study of the Torah. He also built many public buildings, teaching institutions, hospitals and so on. So in many of these institutions, he would provide jobs for the Jewish people from Baghdad. So he looked after his own community. When he arrives in Bombay, how does he make his money? Well, Bombay is the commercial capital of India at that time. So he starts by selling products from India to China. So this is mainly yarn and opium. Then in China, with the money he's earned, he buys goods and sells them to Britain. And then with this money, he, he buys cotton goods, which are made in Lancaster. So that's his main business.
0: That's interesting, isn't it? I always find, I mean, the key sort of connection here, of course, uh, at that time, is the British Empire, and particularly British India. So you're saying he's, he's selling yarn and opium to China. What was he buying from China to sell to the British
1: well, China, you know, in the early 19th century, was a very advanced country. It only starts to decline from the mid-19th century onwards. So China had many products to sell the world. So it would be tea, it would be silk, it would be porcelain. These were extremely desirable in Europe, and they were luxury products, especially porcelain and silk. These were luxury products. So if you could obtain those and export them to Britain and France and Germany. The wealthy classes, the royal houses of these countries would pay top dollar for them.
0: Then the cotton was transported to Britain and in Lancashire it would be turned in the mills into what?
1: So the Lancashire mills would turn the cotton into the finished products. So he would then take the finished cotton goods and he would import them into India.
0: So those were the early sweatshops?
1: Yes, well, the early sweatshops were in Rochdale and uh, Salford and the the cities around Manchester, yeah.
0: Interesting. So he was selling it back to the British in India or so to to local communities?
1: Mostly to the local communities, but, of course, also to the British army in India or British residents of India, yes.
0: And when I look back at that time, so he's in 1832, I would imagine that Bombay or modern Mumbai would have been this port, this metropolis... And, and all of these goods going in and out, and by sale, or would have we had steam by then?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, steam was, ju- was just coming in. So then he'd only been there for about 10 years, and then of course we have the Opium War, and suddenly Hong Kong is founded, these treaty ports are opened on the east coast of China, and Sassoon is very, very quick to see the possibilities. So what he does is he sends his sons to Hong Kong and Shanghai to open offices, to open trade with these places. And so his Hong Kong office is opened in 1844, and the Shanghai office is 1845. Oh, so no, he is very fast to get so in, in there. very, very fast. So this is another aspect of not only Sassoon, so but many Jewish entrepreneurs. I mean, they see the business opportunity, and others are hesitating because they don't know, is it going to last Will the Chinese counterattack and retake Hong Kong and retake Shanghai? You know, let's wait and see, see how it works out. But uh, Sassoon said, no, this is an opportunity, I must take it. So he starts his operations in both of these cities, and he's very content to have his sons there, because, of course, he's, he's very confident in them, and they will do what he wants, and they won't want to betray him. So this is very important to the establishment of his, of his commercial empire.
0: And in Hong Kong and Shanghai, they're again working with these China products to send elsewhere.
1: Well, of course, the biggest product is opium. Of course, now we, we can't regard it with the, the same eyes that we have today. I mean, it was a legal product, and that was what the war with Britain and China was about. And opium it's like tobacco. It's a, a product for which there is no limit to the market. So it was extremely profitable. So by having a sun in Shanghai and a sun in Hong Kong, of course, you facilitate the, the trade of opium. But not only opium. As, the, as I mentioned before, they are also handling a lot of other products. But, of course, by having people on the ground, you are able to get much more market intelligence and handle the operation much more efficiently.
0: I'm talking to Mark O'Neill, the author of Israel and China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. And uh, so it goes right through the centuries, the the connections between the Jewish community and China. So David Sassoon is the son of the treasurer of Baghdad and uh, then through anti-Semitism in Baghdad, uh, which then is a province of the Ottoman Empire, moves to Bombay, modern-day Mumbai, in 1832 to start his Business empire. So, did David Sassoon actually travel to, to Shanghai and other areas?
1: I don't think so. I mean, those days travel was much more complicated than it was today. And as, as we say, he was 40 when he moved to, to Bombay. So, he, he sent his sons to do it for him. So, yeah, they traveled a lot and they were in charge of his China and Hong Kong operations and they, of course, kept him informed of all the things they were doing, and he remained the head of his business empire. But as far as I know, he mostly stayed in India.
0: What do we know about him as such? Was anything written beyond, you know, know, business accounts? Do we know anything about him personally, like who he married, um, and more about his family?
1: Well, he had two wives, uh, both Jewish ladies. The first one died quite young, and then he married another one. He had eight sons and five daughters by the two wives. He was a pious man. He paid a lot of attention to religion. So, as I say, he built synagogues in Bombay and Pune, and he was a very big philanthropist also. So he donated money to many good causes in India, but not only for Jewish people, for local people also. I think he saw this as his religious duty, that if you are God blesses you with prosperity and wealth, you've got to share a part of it with other people, the people less fortunate than yourself. So I think he was very well thought of by the Jewish community of India and, and in fact, the Indian community as a whole.
0: Do we have members of the Sassoon family here in Hong Kong today?
1: Well, what, what then happened was the the sons, as I say, extend the... Uh, Empire to Hong Kong and, and Shanghai. And in my book, in the section on Shanghai, we write a lot about Sir Victor Sassoon, who's a member of the family. Sir Victor Sassoon. Sir Victor Sassoon, yes. So he's got a
0: British knighthood.
1: Yes, yeah, Sir Victor is not at all religious. He very much likes the ladies. And in the 1920s, when the Indian nationalism is beginning to take root and expand, he becomes anxious So he moves the center of the family enterprise from Bombay to Shanghai. And with the money he brings, he then invests heavily in real estate in Shanghai. So if you go to Shanghai today and you go to the Pusi area, that's the traditional area of Shanghai, you will find many very imposing buildings which Sassoon built, which are still used today for the purpose for which he built them. For example, the Peace Hotel, I'm sure oh, wow, all your okay. listeners would have yes. heard of that. Then there's the um, Jinjiang Hotel, and there's the Grosvenor House, which is a very elegant, high-class apartment building. And That's what he built it for, and it's still today. I mean, if you were a very wealthy Shanghainese or a wealthy overseas Chinese, and you've got enough money, you would buy an apartment there. It's one of the best addresses to have, and that's where Nixon stayed when he came in 1972. So the golden period for Sir Victor Sassoon was from early 1920s to 1941 when the Japanese took over the whole of Shanghai. And in this 20-year period, he invested heavily in Shanghai. He had many other businesses as well as real estate. And it was a time when Shanghai was booming. It was the most prosperous city in the Far East. And he was a great beneficiary of it. And to some extent, he caused it because by building these very fine buildings and putting his confidence in his capital in Shanghai, he helped to attract people to come. And then what happened was uh, he saw the civil war in China, he saw that the communists would win, so he started to move his money out. He didn't get all of it out, but he started moving it sooner than the others. And, for instance, after f- 1945, if you wanted to rent one of Sassoon's properties, you had to pay in Hong Kong U.S. dollars... You couldn't use Chinese currency. So even from 45, he was aware of what was going to happen.
0: So with David Sassoon moving from Baghdad to Bombay in 1832, by the time we come to Sir Victor Sassoon, is he a, a grandson or a great-grandson?
1: I think it's a great-grandson. Mm-hmm. But Sassoon made an unusual choice. He decided to move his capital out of China. He decided to leave China. So where, where is he going to go? Well, he could have gone. Well, he could have gone anywhere. A, a man with his wealth could go anywhere, but he chose to go to Nassau in the Bahamas. So that's where he lived for the rest of his life. He was very keen on racing, and Nassau has a very active racing circuit. It has a very low tax regime. So horse racing. Horse racing. Horse racing, and um, it, of course, there's a very nice climate. So. He spent the rest of his life there.
0: No, you were saying that in Shanghai, I mean, he had uh, the the Grosvenor apartments, but also the Peace Hotel, which I love going into. I mean, I couldn't afford to stay there, but uh, I love going to see it when I, I go to Shanghai. And, of course, it still has a sort of resident band, and you can go there for actual tea dances. So you get an impression, probably, of what 1920s, 1930s Shanghai was like by just going in the foyer there.
1: Well, he was a bon vivant. He loved uh, parties, dances, banquets, you know, nightclubs. So this is what he put into his hotel. So the hotel became, for wealthy expatriates, wealthy Chinese, it became one of the social centers. So there would be balls and, and anniversaries and birthday celebrations. There were restaurants, there were nightclubs, there were bands, there were dances, and he was a great participant in all, in all this. And, of course, he knew people from all over the world and they would come and visit him. So he had his own apartment on one floor of the hotel. And he also had a Tudor villa in a suburb. Tudor villa? Built in the British Tudor style in a suburb of Shanghai. So that's where he would go for the weekends. But if he was busy with work and he had lots of meetings, he would stay on one f- floor of the Peace Hotel. And the current government... Of course, during the Marxist period, it was very critical of Sassoon. So but now they realise what an asset they've got. So as you say, they, the band is still playing there. They've restored the hotel in the in the style it was before. And it's now become a very important tourist attraction in, in Shanghai. So like you, I, we're going to Shanghai next week. We can't afford to stay in it, but we will certainly go to look at it, just to see what Sir Victor did when he was there.
0: Author Mark O'Neill there, on David and Victor Sassoon. Mark is the author of Israel and China, from the Tang Dynasty to Silicon Wadi. Last week, I joined antiquarian dealer Jonathan Wattis at the 2nd Fragrant Harbour Maritime Festival on Pier 8 in Central, where he showed me a rare hydrographic chart of Hong Kong harbour dating back to 1946.
2: Today we are at the Fragrant Harbour Festival, which is a maritime festival held at the Maritime Museum in Hong Kong.
0: It's suitable, isn't it, to be on the sea for today's subject? It is indeed,
2: and there is the silver star arriving as you talk. (laughs) And uh, Yes, absolutely, because we have set up a stand to show charts and maps and photographs and some early views of Hong Kong and the harbour because the whole idea of fragrant harbour I, I can't do the fragrance because I haven't got the joysticks, but I can do <laughs> the harbour because I've got the charts so, and in among the charts are some um, wonderful used and, and one particular great rarity is this harbour plan that we have from 1946 and it was the first chart that was done after the second world war and it is fascinating because it was printed in very small numbers on board a ship shortly after the end of the Second World War and it shows extraordinary detail of the harbour which includes all sorts of wrecks which are shown within the harbour and the locations of those. So this was the first harbour plan that was done after the Second World War and it shows and resonates that period.
0: Yes, in front of us we've got, you know, numerically, it's a fantastically detailed chart. It's sort of about four foot by three foot. Yes,
2: yes, yes. I mean, it's an extraordinary size. It's actually bigger than regular size charts because it's, it's done in this special edition uh, on board a ship to provide a starting point when they're starting to rebuild Hong Kong after the war and show the harbour.
0: So what was the purpose of of this chart of being Uh, in 1946? And you say it's very rare Uh, and we can go on to who did it uh, afterwards but looking across here, as you say um, all across the the water areas are all these numbers.
2: Well the numbers are the soundings in fathoms and so what will happen is every few years you have to update a chart so that it's an aid to mariners. So any ship that wants to come into Hong Kong Harbour in those days, would be best advised to have a chart, Uh, but that's up to date because then it shows all the hazards. So you don't want to run your ship onto a rock, but you also don't want to run it onto a sandbank. So an updated chart will give the latest soundings, and this is why this is so useful, but, so, in terms of what's on the harbour, you get the latest information. However, what is on the land is also very interesting because there's very little shown. It's, it's really, there's almost, this is another thing because it's been left out. So, in this case, you know, when you've got Kowloon Peninsula with the roads, none of the roads are named. When you've got Victoria, Hong Kong, you can see roads, but they don't name them. So, there's all these elements. The other thing that's interesting that's missing in this particular chart is the lighthouses and it is quite possible that the lights were not back on by that time when they were doing the survey and the survey was done in October and November of 1945 by HMS Challenger. It is an important part of bringing back the harbour to life and bringing in the information so that the ships can come in, both the commercial shipping and... But in this case, it's probably used for the Navy, the Royal Navy, because it's a Royal Navy survey done by the Hydrographic Office of, of the East India area.
0: What amazes me is when you're looking at this, it's surveyed by officers on board HMS Challenger in October and November 1945. It's then produced in HMS White Bear in January 1946. So HMS White Bear, that's another ship.
2: That is another ship.
0: So they actually produced the map inside and printed it.
2: They have a a, a wonderful printing press inside what was basically quite a small ship, but it it is, and, and we have seen a photograph i uh, was very fortunate uh, that I uh, send the information to Dr. Stephen Davis, who sent me back a, a picture of the printing press with people actually operating it in, in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, in July 1945. So it's just prior to this time. But So you've got these men with this incredible printing press where they are actually producing this these beautiful charts. It's on a certain type of paper. It's not a big, strong paper like the other charts. It's a thinner paper, but then maybe it's a kind of wartime issue, isn't it? It's after that.
0: So when when they're actually going through Hong Kong harbour here and they're sort of marking at various fathoms how the depth of the harbour, but also what wrecks will be there, because, I mean, after the war, surely there was a lot of debris. There wouldn't have only just been ships that were sunk. During the war, like through bombing raids or whatever, but there were ones that were deliberately scuppered.
2: Yes, and uh, the most famous of those is HMS Tamar. And here we have a, a very clear sighting and, and showing of HMS Tamar between central and, and going towards Kellett Island, which is now where the yacht club is. And of course, by this time, it's all reclaimed, this land. But uh, it's very interesting. So you've got Tamar clearly shown, and, and this would be accurately depicted by the, the surveyors on the ship. But the other wrecks that are in it are also on shore. There are a couple of other small wrecks very close to shore, which would now be reclaimed land. And then there's another wreck which is fascinating, which was apparently a merchant ship, the Japanese merchant ship, which was one of the most difficult for them to salvage. The reason for it being difficult for salvaging was it was so close to the fresh water pipes that ran between Hong Kong and... Sorry, they ran between Kowloon and Hong Kong Island. So they couldn't take this thing up in one go. They had to break it up and take it up, and they had to be so careful they didn't disrupt the water supply. So it's interesting.
0: Now, HMS Tamar is still lying there,
2: isn't it? I believe parts of HMS Tamar are still still lying there, and it's been quite a contentious subject for a while. There was another interesting element to this particular chart, uh, which was that it was a chart that was used and drawn over, and that the the information was drawn over by uh, the Marine Department in Hong Kong up until 1952, and it was sent as, as an update to the Admiralty in England to be reprinted. So there is a manuscript copy of this with all these notes adding and updating it to 52. And there was an issue about some of the wrecks that were there because I believe somebody in the department said this doesn't exist and this doesn't exist. But in the meantime, there had been a further survey by an, another ship but showed that they they, they did still exist. So this became quite a controversial issue.
0: So does that mean that they're, they're deliberately leaving things out or they just didn't spot them?
2: I don't know the answer to that, but they were left out. So the survey was done by HMS Dampier that showed that some of these wrecks still survived, and so the Admiralty Office refused to print the the updates of some of the things that were sent in in 1952. So clearly this debate and and controversy is still going on today.
0: Uh, You can see how draftsmen have worked, as you say. You do have the Peninsula Hotel mark there. You've got Blackhead Hill. You've got the
2: observatory. Yes.
0: So that's now Blackhead Hill is, is Signal Hill. So you've got various piers coming out, and, and on the other side you've got, you know, still named as uh, Victoria, St John's Cathedral, Murray Barracks, the Royal Navy Yard, Hong Kong University Tower. So there, there's a few items on land that are marked, and a few squiggles. They're contours. I know. <laughs> but sometimes they show the
2: highest point as well. But they are very sparse. Yeah. They're not like a proper no. ordnance survey map. No, that's not survey. their yeah.
0: point of concentration. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at all the numbers inside, I mean, were they also, when you've got all of these fathom markings, they're obviously showing the different depths and where all of these different wrecks were. So some of this, as a survey, they would have had previous information to work off.
2: That's a good point, yes. Normally they would, yes. So they would have been probably working on a a chart that was probably from the late 30s, although, you know, they, they, they were possibly updating it. But the information, maybe they had the information up to 41, but, uh, you know, they're probably going back on the charts they had before the outbreak of war.
0: So, I mean, the fact that, you know, you have this map produced, or chart rather, and uh, who would have it been for?
2: Well, it would have been for the Navy. So they were coming back into Hong Kong and they, they have to avoid all the hazards. They have to know where the wrecks are because they could come to grief on those and they also have to know where you've got certain areas which are the piers and the the dockyards where there's going to be other shipping and also Le Yumun is very narrow. It's basically the hazards, but it's a wonderful chart. You see Causeway Bay, which is the area which is before Victoria Park was built. That was in the late 40s, early 50s. You get Stonecutters Island so far away from shore and there's so many details that change radically over the next uh, 30 years from this chart.
0: Jonathan Wattis there of Wattis Fine Art. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.